Welcome to Hardware Addicts, a proud member of the Tux Digital Network. Hardware Addicts is the podcast that focuses on the physical components that power our technology world. In this episode, we're going to be talking about TSMC's new fabrication facility in the U.S. and why this is such an important endeavor for technology enthusiasts, along with other big issues out there we're going to discuss, like the hunt for rare earth minerals. Then we head to Camera Corner, where Wendy will discuss the Camera Corner gift guide this year, just in time with the holidays right around the corner, like a few weeks away. So sit back, relax, and plug in, because Hardware Addict starts now. I'm Ryan, your tech guide through the universe, and with me today are my two co-hosts, Wendy, our resident photographer extraordinaire and hardware enthusiast, and Michael, the software sage and hardware padawan. Let's find out what tech adventures everyone has had this month, because we've kind of missed a few episodes. Everybody's got a lot going on, but the good news is plenty of time to have some hardware stories to go on. So, Michael, no excuses this week. What kind of hardware you've been playing with with our hiatus of a month or so. Well, actually, I have a lot of things to talk about, but we're going to focus on one and I'll save the rest for another episode. So this week, I wanted to talk about the LG TV that I purchased, which is the first TV that I have bought in over a decade, at least over a decade, probably longer. Holy moly. Is that because you haven't had TVs or your TV just lasted that long? I haven't had a TV in over a decade. Yeah, I just used my monitors and I would just watch everything online And that's it. I didn't really need a TV. And I decided I wanted to get one to have access to certain things that are not really available without having to have some kind of subscription service or whatever. And it just made it a lot easier to do it that way. You just wanted to say you had a TV. You wanted to be like, hey, I'm fancy now. Look, everyone, I have a TV. It's more street cred to not have a TV. To be like, I don't need a TV. I haven't had one in 10 years. Now I have one. So I lost that street cred a little bit. But- One of the reasons I wanted to get this particular TV is because it was on sale during Black Friday, and that's nice. Nice. So I saved saved a little bit of money. But also, it's because it is an LG TV, which means it has WebOS. And I was really interested in trying out WebOS on the TV based on all of the visual, like the screenshots I've seen for people using WebOS, and I was really excited to see it. And the latest version of WebOS is nothing like those screenshots. It's very basic. <laughs> it's kind of disappointing. And Aww. also, it was it does not remind me in any way of the original WebOS from Palm that I was a huge fan of and still love to this day because it was it's still a fantastic operating system in the phone version. But this is barely usable. It has a massive delay when you click the buttons for the remote. And I, it could be just the fact that I have a lower end TV because I got it on sale and all that stuff. So it doesn't have like a very powerful CPU to handle the OS. It could be that. But at the same time, it is a little disappointing when I was I was really hoping to use WebOS because of all of the stuff I've seen and allows you to choose what permissions to give you. It allows the 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 user to have control over their TV, which is unheard of these days. Okay, a couple points. 
So for yeah. everyone who's like under 30, let me explain why WebOS is a big <laughs> deal. Uh, yeah. We so there were these phones that came out back when Android was getting popular, starting to get popular. And yeah. I think iOS was around at, during this time as there was well, a just starting period. to peak. It was 2007 and 2000, early 2008 when Android started in 2007 with the iPhone. And then there was the 2009, which was the Palm WebOS announcement. And and WebOS was fantastic and massively innovative and effectively create like started so many different things that eventually Android and iPhone just copied. Yeah, so WebOS had things like cut and paste, and again, for people who are under thirty, iPhone it took forever to get cut and paste. You use it today with no problem, but that was like a major feature that came way later on iOS and Android yeah. had it first, but WebOS had it before all of them. And the cards display and other things that you use, a lot of that stuff is very similar to how WebOS was back then. So it was a fantastic operating system. It was put on hardware that wasn't so fantastic. It was kind of innovative for its time, but the sliding mechanism tended to break a lot. It wasn't as cool and big screen as the other phones. And Palm just didn't seem to have enough resources to kind of move forward with it in any big way. And it kind of died. So a lot of us have Palm Prees because it was just a really mm -hmm. awesome ahead of its time OS. And eventually WebOS became LG bought it and they put it into some of their devices like their TVs. It's unfortunate that it is slow like that because to me, there's no excuse whether you're buying a TV that's kind of in the mid spectrum or even lower consumer spectrum on sale and those type of things. LG should be looking to give a good experience with their smart TV and obviously this is not. So them putting a really, really cheap processor and it being slow like that is, is very unfortunate. But there's actually more that goes to this story because TVs have become super creepy. A lot of televisions are actually turning on mics and listening to your conversations that are going on in your home. This has become a big deal that's actually created lawsuits for companies like Vizio and other devices out there, for instance, like uh, Roku devices and Amazon Fire devices and Samsung devices all have privacy policies that, well, will make you probably puke if you actually read them and are doing things to get data, capture what you're watching, or even in some cases, they're turning on mics and things and listening to your conversations or going around in your home. And this is just getting creepier and creepier. So when Michael told me he was going for a TV, I think the first one you sent me was a Vizio. And then we had this kind of conversation about why I would avoid them. But with any TV, my recommendation is to never use the smart features, the Roku features, especially Roku, who has a terrible privacy policy, in my opinion, mm. that are built into the television, but to rather get a separate media streaming device. Some of right. the better ones out there, people aren't going to like me for it, but Apple's device is one of the better ones out there because oh, it has a lot you. of privacy, data <laughs> protection out there, or even better than that, is to have your own device that you build for streaming and things. So a lot of people uh, will do Jellyfin and other devices they create on their own network that they control and things. But don't utilize the smart TV capabilities. Like I have a television with Roku built in, and it's just default dead, nothing set up, not connected to Wi-Fi, and I use other devices to stream my television needs out there. Yeah, that's the same thing that I'm doing. I, I didn't give you a suggestion of what TV to get because I did my typical normal thing of, hey, Ryan, what do I get? 
that's my go-to first question. Just tell me, and then <laughs> I do me. it. What do and I sometimes buy? that works out, and sometimes he doesn't have a. He always has a, a, a suggestion. He always so, has a suggestion. Yeah, this is Ryan. I mean, but the first on. thing he did say was, "Do not get a Samsung." <laughs> I was like, "Okay, yeah. right. I'll look into this." But then I was curious about an LG because of the WebOS thing. So I was already, you know, wanting to try out the LG, and I do think that I'm a fan of the LG experience to some degree, if it was just a little bit more responsive, it would have been fine because the out-of-the-box experience, you have to agree to do certain permissions manually before it does anything. So like it has the voice detection and the voice control, but you have to tell it to do it. Otherwise it won't do it. Awesome. And that is a, that's a thing that people should talk about for LG because that is, and also LG should promote it because that's a privacy thing that if Absolutely. you don't want it, you don't have to have it. Whereas these other manufacturers, you don't have a choice. So if it wasn't so sluggish, I would still be using it. And I decided to get a set top bo- or like a replacement box, like you were talking about and use that instead because it's just more powerful and it's, it's made specifically for that purpose, so it's more responsive and that sort of stuff. So what's interesting is that you know LG may be impacted by something we're going to talk about later in the show where they didn't have a choice but to put kind of some lower-end processors yeah. and things in place I because there has been that. such a chip shortage. It's possible. When it comes to TVs, smart TVs, you should really think about them in the same realm as you think about smartphones. The lower end you go, the crappier hardware that's going to be in it. And yeah, you're probably going to be saving a buck, but you're less likely to get quality updates and you're more likely to have a much slower experience. Exact same as you would with Android phones that are out there. That's an interesting point, but I also want to point out that LG does updates on their TV frequently. Even though it's like a low-end... you know, Black Friday deal sort of thing. It is still getting updates and they're still improving it because when I first got the the TV, the WebOS experience was very different UI. And then I ran an update and it had a totally different experience. It was still too sluggish for me, but overall it was an improved UI from the previous one. So I do think that it's important for that. They shouldn't be, even on the low end, you shouldn't sell something where your first reaction, Michael, is, oh my gosh, I got to go buy something else in order to use this. Like, it's fine to have a lower end TV, but I think that puts LG in a really bad spot to sell something that people's first reaction is, this is so sluggish, let me go buy something else. And in that case, I think LG needs to own up to putting a little bit better processors in place. to be fair to what I'm saying, I should be, you know, a little bit more clear about the experience. It was sluggish, but it wasn't so bad that I went and got something else. I already had the other thing, and that's the only reason I switched to it. If I I could have used the regular one that came on the TV, it would just been slightly irritating. It was sluggish gotcha. enough to be annoying, but I wouldn't have made me go out and get another one. But because I already had another one, I had no reason to not Throw use that. There. Well, very cool. This is a good conversation, I think, for coming back on Hardware Addicts because there's a lot of interesting things in the TV realm out there that people need to consider. I don't think we've done an episode just on television, so I don't think um, we kind have. Kind of a cool uh, item to bring up. Wendy, what have you been up to? Well, if you've listened to the last couple episodes of Linux Out Loud, 
first you knew that I was thinking about getting a Cricut Maker, and then I had decided to buy said Cricut Maker, and it had arrived during the last episode of Linux Out Loud. I have now had this device for about a week, and I have to say, overall, I'm really impressed with all of the awesome things that it can do. One of the reasons why I chose this device was because all of the different cutter machines out there, it has some of the best options. I won't say it has some of the best software. That's a totally different story. And you can go to Linux Out Loud to hear all about the software side of my experience with the Cricut Maker. This is just the hardware side of all of that. So this one will do up to 12 inches wide in cutting. It could do paper, vinyl, wood, leather, faux leather, just an amazing amount of different things that it can cut, engrave, all kinds of stuff. And because of the cells going on right now, I have quite a few different tools. So I have the original knife, the little blade, a fabric cutting wheel, the engraver, the debosser, the stronger, deeper cutting blade, and something else in there. Oh, the foil tool. So with all of those different things, this machine can do an amazing amount of things. Now, I'm not always much of a crafter. Some of that comes down to time. One of the biggest reasons for getting this device was because my oldest daughter absolutely loves to craft all kinds of things. And when I was doing kind of the back and forth. I already know somebody who owns a machine like this. They've been very happy with it. Happy enough that they have a second version of one of the machines that they have. So it kind of led me down that route to getting one of my own. I've only done a few things with it so far, but I'm very, very impressed with the speed in which it does. There is a more advanced model, which is the Cricut Maker 3. It allows you to do some cutting, crafting, where you don't necessarily need a mat under it, which gives you a lot more flexibility, especially when cutting larger projects. But you know me, I'm the one here on the show that typically is like, cost per performance, what am I going to get? There right. is no maker two. So it's not like I was skipping two generations. It was just one. This one was a much, much better price. It came with more tools, and really the only thing it didn't do was cut mat-free. Very, very happy with the purchase so far, and I've nowhere near come to the limits of what this piece of hardware can do yet. I haven't even scratched the surface. So my wife wanted one of these devices a few years back, and uh, I picked one up for her, and it's been a really fun device to play with. It was during the time, though, that Cricket actually had a big controversy because they were going to lock down their app to the point where you had to buy a subscription to even look at free templates or other things. It was something like that going on, but they ended up reversing their decision, which I actually give them credit for because a lot of companies don't reverse their decisions on that type of stuff. So I'll be interested to listen to the episode where you talk about the software side of things. But from a hardware perspective, if you watch Destination Linux and you see some of the cups that I have that have memes on them, like diamond hands mm. and stuff like that. In my household, we only use Yeti cups because it's just 
the thing. Like there's coffee cups and then there's Yeti everything. Like we drink out of stainless steel like a boss would. <laughs> Like true warriors. And yeah, uh, so we, we use the cricket machine to actually print like funny sayings and logos and stuff on that. Like uh, for Das Geek channel and stuff, we have Yeti cups with logos on them and things. So it's a really useful and fun tool to have around. And I'm sure you're going to do much cooler things with it than even what we've done. But it's definitely, it's like a Dremel, like a fully upgraded Dremel that does is automatic, yeah. automated for you. And that's what makes it kind of amazing uh, machine because it can do a little bit of everything. It's very cool. Check them out, crickets. When I first saw it, it said I, I read it as cry cut. So I'm glad I waited till y'all said that, so I know how to say. It. <laughs> Maybe it is cry cut. I don't know. I've just called it cricket. Every single week, no, it is cricket. Every single week that I've talked about it on Linux out loud, it's typically Nate tossing it to me as changing topics. And he has been excellent in making fun of the name of it because of how it's spelled every single week. So if you would like to catch his interesting versions of how he says it, make sure you're checking out the shows over there. I can't wait to see what all we can do with it. I bought some more materials to go with it today. And my daughter will definitely be the one doing the most with it, all of the amazing art and stuff that she does. It's one more way for her to progress that forward and using some different software options, not necessarily the one that everyone typically nice. does out there. Mm. Well, the next time we cover it, we're going to have to have like a cricket section and we'll start it like this. He's, he's using his soundboard again, Wendy. <laughs> Dang it. Like you can't get him to stop. It's been a month and he's still <laughs> using sound effects on that thing. All right. So the interesting thing that I want to tell people about is that Linux Out Loud, Hardware Addicts, Destination Linux, all these amazing shows are under one family umbrella, which is Tux Digital. That's the network that has all That's of these awesome right. shows under it. Mm-hmm. And you can become a patron to support all those shows now just by becoming a patron of Tux Digital. So if you go to patreon.com slash Tux Digital, you can become a patron. It used to be you had to be subscribed to my channel to get Hardware Addicts early. You had to subscribe to... Michael's channel to join some of his live events. You had to describe Destination Linux to be paid. Now it's just one. We're making Super the family. The family's coming together. Finally. As it it's should all, be. It's all about family. Let's get some Corona. All about family. All right. about family. Thanks, and Vin there Diesel. Is- <laughs> That's exactly what I was talking about. And there is way more to the Pine 64 uh, family, which you've picked up another piece of, Ryan. Oh, look at that transition. That wow. transition was just dope, Wendy. Smooth. I'm over here, just my heart skipping a little bit. All right. <laughs> yes, I picked up the Quartz B Pine 64, which we had Pine 64 on the show. I absolutely love their faces over there at Pine 64. It's an amazing company doing amazing things, like the Risk Five work that they're doing. Uh, and getting that in the hands of consumers and things, which is going to be just outstanding. But anyways, I picked up the Quartz B because it was recommended as the closest thing to a Raspberry Pi in the Pine 64 family. And I wanted to check it out and see what it was all about. The Pine 64 Quartz B is, um, it's just not up to what I was expecting with the Raspberry Pi. As much as I love Pine 64 and you know I love them, the only option for an OS that has a GUI that I've been able to get to work is Manjaro. So that's kind of the default one that it comes with. And I love Manjaro too. 
I love everything that they do. It's a fantastic distribution on Linux, but it's just not the distribution I think of for a single board computer like that. And unfortunately, it uses GNOME as well as the default for the single board, so it's a little slow. And when you mentioned Michael WebOS being choppy, that's how I would describe running a GUI on this Pine 64. Oh. And it kind of reminds me very much of the fact that it's probably not even supposed to be a GUI-based board, whereas the Raspberry Pi has the Raspbian, which is a Debian-based distro, very lightweight. I think it uses XFCE. This uh, just doesn't have enough power to really be pushing a GUI at all, so it would be more of a headless board. Now, aside from that, it has all the cool pins and capabilities that you can do certain projects with and things. If you're somebody who likes to run things from a terminal or headless, uh, I think it would work fantastic. I just wish there was an option for this board. ArmBN is something that it recommends for the Quartz A, but isn't listed for the Quartz B. And I haven't been able to get ArmBN to work on the B. And so I'm sure that would be a better experience. But I'm somebody who wanted to use this with kind of a GUI interface because I also got a portable monitor, which I'll talk about in our next episode uh, to go along with it. But I'm just not happy with the Manjaro experience in this kind of board. That's kind of a bummer. I would love to find some really nice additional options to the Raspberry Pi. We did talk a little bit about that on Linux Out Loud. I know here I am hitting up another show once again. But we did talk about that a couple episodes ago. But it's different between just talking about the options that you have out there and then actually getting your hands on one and comparing that performance to them. So you said it does have the GPO pins, right? So you could still use it for different weather stations or whatnot. It should work with a lot of those different sensors, which sounds like it would make a great device for that. Headless, but not a really handy little mini travel system, which you can really do with some of these higher end Raspberry Pi boards. Yeah, like running things like on a Raspberry Pi 4, for instance, I I could run things like a uh, FTP server, Pi hole, Mm -hmm. and multiple projects all on one Pi. And in in this case, it just would not have the power to do that in a GUI-based format. You would have to run everything through the terminal, which is fine. It's just not what I expected. I kind of was hoping this would be kind of a competitor to the Raspberry Pi 4. And I think it could be with the right OS, but I'll give Manjaro credit, right? They're the only one out there writing a distro for this board. So I just wish they chose XFCE, which I think is Manjaro's default. It's kind of strange they went with GNOME, which is just a much heavier desktop environment. And unfortunately, the packages are locked down So Pac-Man doesn't have access to the XFCE desktop and things that I could find. Now, I'm in the early stages of playing around with it, so maybe I'll be able to unlock some things in the future with it. But first impressions, uh, very interesting board, definitely worthy if you're somebody who's a hobbyist of checking out, but don't expect it to be Raspberry Pi. Yeah, that's really good information to know. And also just a quick information for those who are curious, the Raspbian uses LXDE by default, not XFCE, Mm. although XFCE would probably run just fine. And I do oh. agree it's a very interesting point that they chose GNOME instead of XFCE when XFCE is the default for Manjaro. It would make more sense to me that they would use that. So maybe they will think about that in the future and see if that's a better option to go with for they the They do listen to time. our shows. Yep. Yeah. This episode of Hardware Addicts is brought to you by DigitalOcean. 
Cloud computing can be, let's say, complex, but standing up a reliable, affordable cloud infrastructure really doesn't have to be. At DigitalOcean, you can enjoy a comprehensive portfolio of compute, storage, database, and networking products that put your cloud infrastructure in capable hands so you and your teams can get back to doing what matters most, building world-changing apps that grow your business. DigitalOcean also provides you with predictable pricing, robust product documentation, and services that developers love. For example, the DigitalOcean Marketplace is awesome because it makes it really easy and quickly to be able to upload the software you want to have onto a droplet and get started so easy, so fast. And DigitalOcean also helps teams regardless of size, whether you're a team of one person like just yourself or a team of a thousand people, DigitalOcean can help your team grow with their simple, powerful cloud computing services. And as a listener of the Hardware Addicts podcast and a member of the Tux Digital community, you can get started for free. In fact, it's better than free because DigitalOcean is giving you a $100 free credit that when, when you go to do.co slash tux2022, that's do.co slash tux2022. So again, go get started on your 60-day $100 free credit on DigitalOcean's awesome cloud platform by going to do.co slash tux2022. So there's been some really exciting news happening in the world of processors and chip making, and you got to be a real hardware geek to get as excited about it as I am. But by the end of this story, I promise you, you're going to be as excited and have geek chills like I did. The big news is we talked about on prior episodes, Intel manufacturing and creating fabrication facilities in the U.S. and how important that was. But there's another company that is really vital to the chip making world. And that company is TSMC. You've heard us kind of mention it before but maybe you don't understand how big and important this company is. So we're going to dig into that a little bit. So TSMC stands for Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing Company, and it is the world's most valuable semiconductor company in the world, the world's largest semiconductor hmm. foundry, and one of the largest companies in Taiwan. And it's doing some really big moves here in the U.S., which is super exciting. Uh, before we get into all that, what they're going to do, I want to talk about why TSMC is so important. So when you think about the whole technology world, all this hardware that we love, and you think about the big name companies, AMD, Apple, Arm, Broadcom, Marvel, MediaTek, NVIDIA, All Winter Technology, iSilicon, Spectrum 7, Unisoc as well as many other companies that also outsource their production to TSMC, like Intel, NXP, ST Microelectronics, Te Texas Instruments. All of these companies rely completely or partially on TSMC. They're like uh, kind of a big deal. Kind of a big deal. Yeah. It's interesting because I had never heard of TSMC until AMD started talking about how they use TSMC to make their new processors and GPUs and all that stuff. I did not realize even then, up until this very moment, how massive that company is. In order to be that important to that many big brand companies, like that's a massive Kind of a big deal. I'd say that they are more than a big deal. They are one of the biggest deals when it comes to chip manufacturing. And when we're talking revenue, it is 
There's just no way to put in your mind what we're talking when it comes to numbers. And that's 57 billion, billion with a B, which dwarfs <laughs> AMD, one of my favorite companies, right. whose revenue in 2021 was only, and I say this tongue in cheek, 16 billion. <laughs> Relatively speaking, only $60 billion. Right, exactly. Yeah, when you put it in perspective, not only the names that I listed off, all those technology companies relying on this company, because what people probably don't realize is there's only a few facilities, a handful of them in the entire world that can actually manufacture chips. And one of the biggest ones is, of course, TSMC's foundry that can do this. And this is really important process because without chips, you have nothing. Everything we have today, heck, even toaster ovens practically have right. some type of chip and things inside of them. So without somebody to manufacture the chip and actually make it, you've got a military that's down, a government that's down, consumers are down, all your electronics are down, like everything is gone. And yes, TSMC's revenue is very impressive at $57 billion. And AMD, what an amazing comeback story with AMD at 16 billion, still amazing. But TSMC, without TSMC, AMD would have not been able to do near the innovations that they were able to accomplish. So we were really excited on this show when Intel announced their fabrication facilities coming to the US. And I'm equally excited that TSMC has announced they're doing the same things. Now, they already have nice. a facility in Arizona. And they spent $12 billion in that to start kind of manufacturing chips. But they've committed another $40 billion mm. to build out their fabrication in Arizona. So between Intel and TSMC, we're actually going to have massive capabilities here in the U.S. to be able to build and fabricate chips. And this is huge for yeah, everyone. This is crazy. The amount that they're investing is like 80% of the revenue that they made. So that is a huge investment. It's not just, you know, they're investing in the the economy here or whatever, but because they're doing so much, I'm very curious to see how this impacts the local economy or, you know, just in general. I think it's important to step back and think about what goes into these facilities because it's not like you're building just a regular manufacturing plant like you would with cars or even the SSDs for your computer. These have to be ultra clean rooms. You have to have very, very high security in these places in order to keep contracts with governments that are needing these chips for different things. And if dust gets in, little specks of dust, you're talking some major damage that can happen to these chips, the processing of these chips. So it's not cheap to build these facilities. And I think that is part of the reason why we've had just one main facility in Taiwan for so very long. They're needing to invest billions of dollars in order to have the proper facility cross all of those T's, dot all of those I's to make sure that the products coming out of the U.S. match the quality of the products coming out of Taiwan. Absolutely. And this wouldn't have happened without the CHIPS Act being passed. So I, again, I'm not a 
getting into politics on this show or anything like that, but this is a big deal. And the chip acts was a very important act to happen because it, Intel would not be building their foundry and TSMC would not be investing this much money without it. And the reason why it's such a big deal is everything from the military, the security of an entire country and countries all depend on the fact of having redundancy because everything shuts down. You don't have F-35s, cruise missiles. You don't have aircraft carriers. You have none of that. If all of your chips are coming from one place and that place happened to have a natural disaster, heaven forbid was invaded or something else took place, all of that would shut down. So not having a chip manufacturing here in a big way and it doesn't have to be just the US. I mean, redundancy anywhere. If we were talking about France right now or UK or whatever, I would still be equally as excited that we're extending these manufacturing out to other places because Taiwan is incredibly important and they're amazing, the accomplishments that have come out of yeah. Taiwan, but there's no redundancy in that. And in any business that you're dealing with something this important, you have to have that redundancy. And I'm very yeah. excited that they're building it here. It was annoying to wait two months for my contacts because the manufacturer of my contacts had shut down. It could be devastating to countries, economies to lose a chip manufacturer. Yeah, we've already seen the a, a lot of different industries hit by the shortages of, of the chips. I mean, there's the, the car market, for example, went insane and still arguably even is now. But for a few months, the because you could not get a new car, it would take so long that the used car market was just as expensive, if not more so, than new cars because of how n unavailable everything was. Yeah. And it's, if you think about still it, like, great point. yeah, exactly. And cars have hundreds of chips in one car. So the amount of how the amount of importance that we've talked about TSMC or any of these chip manufacturers is is way higher than we can really even describe because these days chips are in everything. That's right. And so we've we've seen the impact, which I think was important to probably getting stuff passed like the CHIPS Act because we saw what happened when we don't have it. And it's having a rippling effect through the economy to this day. Years later, we're still behind. We still don't have enough chips and Hopefully when these facilities get up and running, which it will take probably several years for them to start rolling stuff out, that will ease and costs will come down. But also there's the impact on the local economy. This is huge for people getting jobs there. It's going to employ thousands of people and for the universities. Wendy, I couldn't help but think about all the programs you do with your kids and the STEM programs you do, the robotics and things and thinking here we have future engineers, future scientists future factory workers, that without these facilities from Intel, TSMC coming into the US, your children may have no place to actually work. They'd have to go to another country to actually apply their skills and be able to work on these things hands-on. But now with these projects coming here to the US and Arizona, they actually have places they could go here to follow their dreams and passions. And I think it's going to open up a whole new world for our kids to be have the a option to actually work on this. World. Thank you, Michael. That backdrop really helped sell it. You're welcome. Like. Yeah, you're welcome. It really <laughs> does have an overall stability, not only on making sure you're getting the chips right now, which I mean, I'm using right now relatively here within the next few years, 
but continuing to have stability in these markets as you move on. When you look at how much technology has grown the last 50 years, even the last 10 years, making sure that they're able to produce these things is a very big deal in order for that technology to increase in the amount of things that it can do and making that cheaper for everybody to have, cheaper to manufacture. So I love seeing this spreading out of these facilities. There's also the thing we have to talk about, which is an unfortunate truth. It's uncomfortable to talk about, but it's a real issue. And that has to do with the working conditions and things like that of facilities that we've all seen from Foxconn and other places mm -hmm. and when they're manufacturing these devices. So the more manufacturing that comes to other places, whether it's the U.S. or other places in Europe and things, I think we are able to put more controls in place to make sure workers are treated properly uh, across the board when it comes to technology. I'm not talking about TSMC here in Taiwan specifically, but I am talking about some of the rare earth minerals and things that go into making some of these processors that are still mined uh, in most exclusively in China, which we're going to get to here in a second. Um, but just to close out on the factory discussion, Apple, NVIDIA, and AMD already have orders in for the new facility. So they're already selling out the space that they have. And I think it's amazing to think about the fact that your new Apple device, your new NVIDIA GPU, and your new AMD processor or GPU might be coming out of the U.S. and be stamped with the U.S., uh, manufactured in the U.S. stamp on it, which is something we haven't seen in, well... Since I've been alive, I can't remember ever seeing that happen. Yeah, right. But it also, it's a it's a sign of being a good idea for these companies to already have put in the orders, and it also suggests that even more companies will be, you know, open to the idea of doing it. Because I've seen a lot of discussions over, you know, the living wage argument or that debate has, has happened for many different industries. And usually the people who are in charge of like the executive thing is always saying something like, well, we'd have to charge you more. And the thing that they would charge is like pennies in comparison. Like maybe you charge $2 more per unit or whatever it is. And that's okay. Most people are fine with it. And I just want to say, if there's a little bit of a surcharge for this, you know, this new facilities uh, making things, I think most people are going to be okay with that. We'll, we'll be fine. Yeah, it reminds me of that Chipotle story where the CEO came out, yeah, and I exactly. don't remember the exact numbers, but it was something like, well, if I pay people $15 an hour, your burrito is going to go up by a dollar. And I'm yes. like, okay, yeah, that sounds wonderful. Like, then they could actually yeah. pay rent. Okay. Anyway, your burrito is so, already expensive. It just One more dollar is not a big deal. Right. <laughs> I'm already going to spend the whole day on the toilet after eating your burrito anyway. So that extra dollar is not going to bother me. <laughs> Makes me want to go have a Chipotle burrito. There you exactly. go. Exactly. We're good at marketing burritos, apparently. We really are. I can tell. You should get on that. You'll yeah, they should way. hire us to do their commercials. <laughs> <laughs> so the piece I wanted to get into now is the rare earth minerals, because this is a really critical part. This This is also a really interesting debate uh, when it comes to electric cars and things, because a lot of people believe, well, I get electric car, it's not damaging the environment. But the reality is to get those parts for those batteries, it's actually extraordinarily damaging getting mm -hmm. cobalt and other things to the environment. 
Um, and so there's this interesting problem that we have to solve there as well. Nothing is as simple as it just appears and we get the materials for batteries because we wish for it. You have to dig and destroy things and get really cheap labor and there's lots of abuse and things like that that happen in the industry getting these things to help us make smartphones and computers and electric vehicles and military weapon systems and all these other advanced technologies that we use require these rare earth minerals. The interesting thing about the labeling for rare earth minerals is they're not actually all that rare at all. I think the name comes from the fact that they're only mined almost exclusively. 85% of it is mined in one place and that's China. And so it's it's rare in that it's rare to see a mine anywhere else, but it's not so rare in that you can't get them all over the world. It's just it's very expensive and it requires lots of land to dig up and China kind of exploits that and people are okay with it, getting their devices there. I have a video on my channel, talks about slave labor and tech. Go check it out. It's very interesting. Uh, we won't get into all that here, but... Just know the United States is actually the second largest exporter, but that only equates to 9.3% of the global total there, which is kind of interesting. Yeah. So it's exclusively there in China. And I think this is not an anti-China propaganda thing because I know people are big on that type of kick. I don't want people to leave this show thinking that, but I think the same issue here with the rare earth minerals is something that we need to tackle that we've just talked about tackling when it comes to the supply chain with chip manufacturing. And that is any place that has 85% of the entire market is not good. We're talking about the earth metals, alloys, permanent magnets, all of that stuff that's needed to make all these components. If something was to happen, governments don't get along again because you know they act like three-year-olds And China says, well, we're just not going to export this stuff anymore. It could shut down entire industries, entire countries could be destroyed from that fact alone. And I think that's something that the world needs to fix. Yeah. Any country that controls any sort of industry that to, to this degree, especially with like supply chain stuff, any country that controls that much is an issue. It doesn't matter what country it is. And that's the whole thing about capitalism. You need competition for capitalism to work. As soon as you don't have competition, then you have a problem. Yep. The mines where these type of things come out of aren't pretty. They're typically very large open pit mines. It takes extremely large machinery to get in and do that. There's actually quite a few of them out west. My husband will go work on some of the machinery, not the super big stuff, not the stuff that you literally have to climb a ladder in order to get into the cab of the dump truck, but some of their smaller stuff he'll actually go and work on. And nobody wants that around their homes. Near my in-laws, there's talk of putting in a very large open pit mine in order to get copper. And it would essentially be taking the mountain down. You're not tunneling into the mountain anymore in order to extract these minerals, these metals, You are going from the top, you're shaving it down, and you're taking it off. And that dramatically changed the landscape. And this is a conversation that we have to have in the tech world. You can't have all of your tech goodies and not mine for the things that it takes to make those. It's also a good place to interject, hey, when you have tech devices that you don't need anymore, don't want anymore, 
There are recycling facilities that can take that stuff and reuse it. So don't toss them in the garbage. Make sure they're going to a proper recycling facility. I love that you brought that up, Wendy. It's such an important thing. It's how I really wanted to close out this whole story is to talk about the importance of recycling this because when they're mining this stuff, whether it's for your electric car, for the batteries, whether it's for your computer, your laptop, the batteries inside your laptop, all of this stuff, it's extraordinarily damaging. It's damaging to the water supply as well. It's not just changing the landscape, but the people who are mining this are generally in forced labor-like conditions. In a lot of cases, they're actually children that are forced to work out in these mines and things, and they're being poisoned as well while they're mining these things, and it's destroying the water tables in the local area and other stuff. It's devastating. This is where technology, I think, when people come together and actually realize where their products come from, that there would be more technology that could be developed that could help in these situations, robotics and machinery and other things to keep people from uh, being exposed to some of these chemicals and other stuff would certainly go a long way and help. But at the very least, we should be considerate enough to say, hey, that iPad with the broken screen that you don't want to get fixed because it's a couple years old still has very valuable resources inside of it that can be recycled. But get those things to a proper recycling facility because it's very important to get that stuff back into production and could be used in newer electronics and stuff. So we don't have to keep mining and mining and getting more and more and more as the new devices come out there and buying used as well, which I'm a big proponent of. Michael's a big proponent. Of. We talk about Wendy a lot. You talk about all the used stuff that you get yeah. that helps keep things going and, and using that stuff that took a lot of labor and a lot of work to get into the market. So either way, the dynamics of supply chain are changing. I'm so happy to see there's more diversity in where chips are made and materials are sourced. Again, if any of these numbers, like the 85% of rare earth metals was US instead of China, I would still be mad about it. So I think, Michael, you made a really good point about that, that it's not about where it is now. It's that it needs to be diversified across the board. And I'm happy to see that's happening. I love the idea that we can help move hardware forward without being reckless and abusive to all the people that make all these amazing technologies, which we would have none of this technology without the engineers, scientists, miners, shippers, truck drivers, rail, and everyone else who helped make all this stuff possible. So next time you take a look at one of your electronic devices, think about all the people involved that helped get it there, because I think it's an important consideration for us to think about. Every time I look at any kind of technology, it blows my mind the amount of engineering and effort required to do any of it. And we also all, not all, but a lot of the times we take this stuff for granted. And I think it's very important that we think about, it's not just a new phone. It's not just a new tablet or a new laptop or whatever. It is a lot of effort on this, on a scale that is basically mind-blowing. I mean, we would take it for granted a lot less, and I think we would appreciate the stuff that we get much more. You certainly wouldn't be throwing your iPad that's old in the garbage pit. Yes. You would be recycling right. it. Yeah. Yep. And I, the, what you said, Wendy, about making sure to recycle the stuff, that I do recycle some of my stuff, but some of it I just leave it in a box so I don't throw it away. I keep it forever. <laughs> but that's not as, as useful either. <laughs> so. 
It's yep. not quite like Jill's computer museum where she looks at it, touches it, enjoys it. It's just hiding in a box in the drawer where nobody gets to enjoy it. Well, I get to enjoy it every once in a while when I go in my closet, you know? Well, there's an awesome organization we've had on the show. We've done a charity event for on Destination Linux, which is Free Geek. Um, and they're a company that takes donations and repurposes laptops and specific hardware components. But look in your local market as well. There's a lot of companies that are trying to get a hold of these materials to recycle them and get them back in. Uh, so, again, awesome stuff. And definitely check out ways that you can uh, help. All of our chips shouldn't be manufactured in the same place and where those minerals are mined shouldn't happen in the same place. You shouldn't be using the exact same password on every single account. And that's why nice. Hardware Addicts is sponsored by Bitwarden. Bitwarden is the pass manager that we use and trust. Bitwarden lets you set up things like a pin to easily access your password manager as well as additional authentications such as master passwords, adding phrases to fingerprint security, all to keep your passwords safe. Bitwarden is the easiest and safest way for individuals, teams, and businesses to store, share, and sync their sensitive data. Go to bitwarden.com tux to get started for free. Say you want that premium account. It starts at just $10 per year. What comes with that? One gigabyte of encrypted file storage, two-step login with YubiKey, U2F, or Duo, Vault Health Reports, TOTP Authenticator Storage, and Generation, plus priority customer support. Make the smart move like many in the community have and go to bitwarden.com slash tux to get started for free. So Wendy, I'm so happy to say this after our hiatus. Take us into the camera corner once nice. again and tell us about the gift guide you have for the camera person in your life. Yay, it's been so long. I'm so excited to be back into Camera Corner and we are in that gift giving season. There's lots of holidays around this time that have different gift giving. And what do you do for that camera person in your life? Well, the easiest ones off the top of the list that every single camera person, maybe even most tech people can use, is storage. SSDs, and it doesn't even necessarily have to be an SSD when you're talking terabytes of data that can happen larger. Spinning rust can be very useful for this. SD cards for their cameras, and if they're like me, they're going to need more than one SD card as they're taking pictures. So somewhere to store those SD cards. Some of these can be more expensive and some of them can be less expensive, especially when you're talking about cases for the storage. I do recommend getting cases that are water tight. That way, if they're taking them with them outdoors, wherever they're shooting, those SD cards are going to be protected. Now, not all SD cards are created equally, and camera True. people especially can be really snobby about their SD cards <laughs> that they have in their machine. So do you have a go-to recommendation, Wendy, on an SD card brand or speed that you pick up? One of the things I noticed is that a lot of the SD card manufacturers got really smart, and they actually put mm. pictures on the packaging to tell you, hey, this will work for a DSLR. This one doesn't have the camera on the package, so don't get it for DSLR cameras and things like that right. to try to help people out. 
Because speed definitely does make a difference. So most of my SD cards are SanDisk. They've worked fantastic for me over the years, both with the SDs and SSDs. They've been a pretty solid company for me. And I suggest if you're picking them out for somebody else, go to the camera section of the store. So in most of these, like Best Buy, they will have SD cards over in one section and they'll have additional ones over by the camera section. Those are definitely going to be the best one to choose. The Extreme Plus is one of my favorites. So it is 90 megabits per second. And why does that matter? Well, if your SD card is really slow, it doesn't matter how awesome your camera processor is. It's waiting on the SD card to finish transferring that data from the internal workings onto that storage. So yes, it does make a big deal. When in doubt and you have the ability to, you can go peek and see what is in their SD card Sneaky. case. Or like yes, casually talk to them about it because most camera people love to tell you about what they're using. If you don't feel comfortable buying them storage, gift cards work for such things too. They're like vegans. They're always going to tell you about it. Oh, yes, absolutely. Happy to share with the brand of camera that they're using, the lenses that they're using, and which storage they like to buy. Free share information. Love it. Another easy one to get your hands on is cleaning supplies. So that would be microfiber towels and the ones that'll spray air on it. Not with pressure, but we'll have a little, you press yourself to spray air on things, to wipe down lenses. Those are pretty easy to find usually in every camera section. And it never hurts, even if you have cleaning supplies, to have more backup ones. It's never enjoyable to be where you're getting ready to shoot the perfect picture. There's some dust on the lens and you thought you had your favorite lens cleaner with you. It's fallen out somewhere. Having a backup for this is incredibly helpful. So spray air does not work well for cameras because the damage that can be caused from the frost, I assume, and things that could happen in the pressure. But Michael, spray air cans would work really well for your PC, for instance, in which you brought over and was way too dusty. Are you trying to say something, Ryan? <laughs> no, I was just making a general recommendation mm, to mm, people out there. Yeah. I see. Okay, I understand. He wasn't judging my dustiness or my cleanliness of my computer, which no. you, for those who don't know, it is spotless. I take care of my computers absolutely immaculately. So I don't know what Ryan's talking about. There's no evidence to There's suggest There's so much anything. dust that it looks clean, like it was meant to be that way, maybe. maybe oh, wow. No, it's it like wasn't that bad. growing dust? It's yeah, not exactly. that bad. <laughs> it wasn't that bad. But it's for me, who I'm a little bit OCD with my electronics, it was, it was a little much. But we'll get it taken care of. Spray air works on computers, Michael, just FYI. Good to know. Yeah. Good to know. You definitely don't want to do that anywhere on your lens. You don't want to push that dust deeper into the different layers of the lens or possibly mess with any of the seals around that. So spray air isn't where you want to go with your lenses and your camera. Keep that to the microfiber cloths. 
any of the dusting off with moving air that's nowhere near as forceful is the way to go with that kind of stuff. And on the realm of cleaning, if they have a favorite place to get their camera professionally cleaned, a gift card there would also be extremely helpful. Do you think Wendy's trying to give us a hint, Michael, about what stuff she wants for Christmas? I, I think like she is no. suggesting heavily. Yeah, yeah. If you want hints, you can go check out the last episode of Camera Corner where I actually give a very specific list of things that I would like for Christmas. Okay. Now you've given us hints. <laughs> <laughs> what, else? what else is on your list for the gift guide, Wendy? Some of those smaller LEDs. Now, I don't suggest using these right offhand. They're typically four or five inches across by three inches tall. Most of them will have adjustability so you can dim them or brighten them but these are fantastic devices for pointing somewhere else pointing off at the wall and getting the light reflecting or using them inside shadow boxes why do you not necessarily want to use these directly well the light can be extremely harsh but they're incredibly easy to pack around you can find some really light light modifiers and take these smaller cheaper lights some of them starting even around 20 25 dollars and take some incredible images with them some of them even have adjustable color which is extremely important if you have lights of different brands being able to match the color means that you can use different brand lights and still get a very very consistent look Say you want somebody who wants to go back to the good old days of medium format pinhole cameras. There is something that I recently found that is absolutely fantastic. This is right around $120 for this pinhole camera kit. And you can take pictures like they did back in the day of early cameras taking some incredible pictures. Now, some of these you'll probably want to develop yourself or take to special places where they can develop those film. But for your retro camera lover, this is an amazing gift. Now, everyone needs a good camera bag. And sometimes it's one of the last things that people are buying. It's that afterthought. I've got this great camera. I've got all these lenses. Now, how do I pack it around? And a camera bag can be a fantastic way to gift your camera person. There's many different varieties. If your camera person is doing a lot of hiking, the backpack style is absolutely fantastic, especially if they have a whole lot of lenses that are with them, distributes the weight fantastically. Some that are easier to get into, more the messenger bag style. That I'm leaving up to you and the style personality of your favorite camera lover. I think even a hard case potentially would be an interesting option as well for those who want to travel with their photography equipment and keep it protected. Yeah, absolutely. Especially if this is being packed inside additional luggage to help keep it from getting smashed or even if it's riding around in a car. I know we've got a family of six. So when we pack to go somewhere, even to my in-laws, which is three hours away, there is all kinds of stuff packed in the back of that car and the camera bag always sits on the very, very tippy top, which then also kind of freaks me out a little bit. Because if one of the kids opens the back door of the car and it comes tumbling out, uh, not, not so nice. So those hard camera cases can be fantastic for travel. Great point. This last thing on the list, 
I think is great for not only the people who have that handheld, quote unquote, real camera, but even for those people in your life that love cell phone photography. And that is a photo printer. Now, I'm not talking about the gigantic ones, but just the little ones. And you can get them for pretty decent prices from the beginning. They print decent photo quality. And so you can take these memories that are right now just being stored on your phone, on the cloud, quote unquote, somebody else's computer, and actually have them in hand, being able to print them at will and have them on your fridge, on your walls, on your desk, all kinds of places. That is a photo gift that I love that I think so many people in our lives could take great use from. These are so cool and so fun. I got one of these for my wife and it's just great for taking these fun pictures that you capture on your phone, printing it out, putting on a refrigerator, even using for Christmas cards and things. It's just really cool idea that they have and they don't cost a lot. And for everything we talked about on this show, as usual, we'll have links in the show notes for the items that you can help support the show and purchase them if they're available on Amazon. So check that out. Which was your favorite gift idea, Michael? I like the pinhole camera. I've never actually played with pinhole stuff, and I've kind of always wanted to. Just never got around Mm -hmm. to it. I think we know what uh, Michael's hinting at. I'm not hinting at anything, but if I did receive that, I would not be annoyed by it. <laughs> well, be totally neither Wendy or me are going to buy it for you, so it's up to the audience. Uh, <laughs> like it, Michael, camera. Which was your favorite gift option, Ryan? I think they're all good. I mean, I'm always a storage person, so anybody who buys me or gets me storage is always going to be on my favorites list because I'm always running out of it. And then, of course, the photo printer, I think, is absolutely amazing. All of this list was fantastic. All of this stuff I think would be useful to have duplicates of or triplicates of in many cases. So you can't go wrong with the camera person in your life getting this. But the photo printer is just, it's a really (laughs) clever device to get someone and something I think they would have a lot of fun with. Even if they're a professional photographer at like Wendy's level, I still think this is a fun thing because you get those random good shots on your camera that you want to print out. Maybe it's not something you're wanting to frame, but just something you're wanting to put in a photo book or on the refrigerator. It can be really enjoyable. Yeah, and also you make sure when you do find that perfect photo and you print it out, you need to make three of them, or as Ryan said, triplicates. Triplicates, yes. I love it. (laughs) (laughs) Well, that's it. Our 72nd episode of Hardware Addicts finally happened, and it's a wrap. Thanks for listening to the show that brings you your bi-weekly tech fix. And if you're not all lit up on tech yet, then be sure to check out all the amazing content on the Tux Digital Network. Head to TuxDigital.com to check out all the great podcasts and YouTube partners available. There's so much to fill your brains with. And then with one Patreon subscription, you can support them all now. Remember, there's no such thing as too much hardware. Learn, build, innovate, and grow. We hope you enjoyed the show. We'll see you next time for another Rare Earth episode of Hardware Addicts. I do miss the very unique closings that you do every week, Michael. I mm-hmm. did miss them. I missed them. Thanks, buddy. Good job. Thanks, And buddy. I have to be honest, your Mongo Bongo almost finally tripped me up this week. <laughs> in case I leave this in the show notes, um, for at least the beginning of this show, I've tried to mess up the words in Wendy's section so that she says, <laughs> there's no such thing as Mongo or Bongo, too much hardware, like learn, innovate, and Bongo is what is in the show notes every single week. Since for the least the six, 
at least six months, maybe even a year now. Yeah. It's and been a while. Yeah. <laughs> it's never tripped Wendy up yet, but I did think to myself, this may be the one. I may get Wendy this time, but. It was yeah. close. I had to do a double take. Nice. <laughs> we took we took a long enough break where it almost got her. <laughs> Next almost time, we'll see. <laughs>